Welcome to 3AM, What's Keeping You Up at Night. Our podcast conversation is driven to bring you the best stories from social impact superstars to answer questions, provoke action, and inspire you. Why do we name the podcast 3AM, What's Keeping You Up at Night? Because so many of us wake up in the middle of the night with questions, ideas, concerns, and sometimes regrets. According to the traditional Chinese understanding of how the body works, it's the time in a person's daily cycle when the body intersects the work of detoxification, rest, recovery, and planning. So a perfect time to begin to optimize your impact to disrupt the status quo, making the world better. Today, we talk with Lindsay Harris, the co-executive director of one of Nashville's most effective social impact organizations. The Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition, known lovingly as TURC, is a statewide immigrant and refugee-led collaboration whose mission is to empower immigrants and refugees throughout Tennessee to develop a unified voice, defend their rights, and create an atmosphere in which they are recognized as positive contributors to the state. Lindsay is a Nashville native who was raised just minutes from the Turk office in South Nashville. She began at Turk as an intern in 2008, working her way up to her current position as the co-executive director. Lindsay has played a key role in strengthening Turk's organizational capacity and developing strategies for long-term sustainability. Our conversation is filled with stories and steps to be successful in a capital campaign, including these gems. Humbly and respectfully calling on those whose passion it is to make a home for Nashville's refugees and immigrants. The deeply held belief they had to enter this capital campaign to serve their deserving constituencies best. And then how humility has reaped success upon success as they built the campaign, executed their plan, and now look to cross the finish line with a strength born of an inclusive mindset. There's so much to cover. So let's jump in. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us at 3 a.m. What's Keeping You Up at Night. It's really honestly an honor to have you here. I mean, just full disclosure, I've had the chance to work with Lindsay and her team. And I really know that for this topic that we're going to really key in on the capital campaign and what that means, you're just going to hear some great stuff. But besides that, she's just a wonderful human being. And so we're just glad you're here. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you, Deb. I am excited to chat with you. And I've learned so much from you. I think we're so excited that we crossed paths and have been able to bring you alongside of us in this window of time. So I'm excited to chat more today. Well, first of all, thanks for that. Um, But before we get started, What caused you to become involved with the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition, just personally? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am a Nashville native. Uh, There's not a ton of us left, but yes, I um, have grown up here actually in the Creve Hall area, which is really in the heart of South Nashville, which is where a lot of the immigrant community resides today, especially along Nolansville Road. You have Little Kurdistan, you have so many different shops uh, that represent people from all over the world. And I grew up watching firsthand how that transformation was taking place in South Nashville. And I was drawn to it. I was intrigued when the H.G. Hill store became Fiesta Mart, You know, and my family struggled with context to understand what was happening. 
they weren't quite as drawn to it as I was. And they had a little bit more questions and sort of um, a different kind of curiosity. And so in my efforts to seek out answers for them and for myself and understand better what's bringing people to the U.S., how do you become a citizen? I saw Turk on the news and I immediately had this reaction. I was like, that, those people, those are my people. This is what I should be doing. And so I went to their website and I read about their internship program. And on my summer break from teaching, I went and did an internship at the organization. And that was in 2008. So I've been there almost 12 years. Wow. Just in terms of self-efficacy and wanting to find out more to perhaps provide a solution for others. That's really interesting. I, you know, I represent a lot of people in Tennessee, a lot of people who grew up in Tennessee, and that is still an important demographic our organization works with. We do work a lot with immigrants and refugees directly, and the majority of our staff and board are immigrants and refugees themselves, but we are also cognizant of the fact that we need to work with people who may not have as much interaction with the immigrant and refugee community and may have questions, and so um, that program is still a key part of our work. So Tennessee's home for everyone. Exactly. Wonderful. One of the other things about Turk that I found really kind of fascinating, and I'm not sure we've done anything more than just a cursory kind of overview of, like, yeah, that's how our leadership works. But would you explain to us, you share the executive director piece. I think some EDs out there might go, wait, what? That sounds fabulous. Others may be a little bit unsure of how that works. So Would you talk about kind of what it looks like and why it works for Turk? Absolutely, yes. So I am the co-executive director, and I am partnered with Stephanie Titro, who is my fellow co-executive director. She and I were team directors at the organization in 2014, and I was the operations director focusing on operations development um, and most of the internal aspects of the organization. And she was our policy director focusing mostly on our advocacy work. And then we both have a background in community organizing, which is sort of the bread and butter of what the organization does, our core that we were founded around. And we were seeing how organizations were often having to choose between a fundraising executive director or a policy executive director, someone who has maybe a content area expertise or someone who is less strong in the content but has stellar relationships with foundations. And so we felt like the organization could thrive from all of those things, and we didn't want to see them have to sacrifice one over the other. And so when the executive position came open for executive director, we decided to apply together, recognizing that we were each bringing really unique strengths to the table, and we felt like it was worth it to figure out how to make this work as a team, that it would ultimately be the best thing for the organization. And we were initially appointed as interim. I think there was a little bit of like everyone wanting to see, okay, how's this going to work? And a lot of people asked, well, how will you make decisions if you disagree? Who gets the final answer? But, you know, we in the past six years have really never found ourselves in a situation where we hit an impasse on a big decision. We've both been able to really hear from each other's perspective and respect each other's expertise. And I think it has allowed the organization to flourish, and we're really proud of that. Does it lighten the load? In some ways, I think so. 
you know, the way we say it is not that we each are half of an executive director. The organization has the benefit of having two full executive directors. It's only an asset to the organization that it has two people who can focus on things at the highest level and are available for different projects. So some people know one of us and not the other. There's a really funny story of our board chair running into a community member and that community member said, wow, Stephanie is doing a wonderful job. And the board member said, well, I don't really talk to Stephanie much, but Lindsay sure is doing a great job (laughs) because we get to work in different areas and still both be so engaged internally and externally. People don't often get to see both of us. It's not like... On Tuesday and Thursdays, I'm the executive director, and on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, she is. We're both fully in that role. So it's a blended kind of model. Exactly. And you all just knew from working together that that was going to work, and then I love that you guys just broached the board with that idea in terms of the selection process. I think it would be hard for an organization to try and hire two people who weren't already known to one another to be co-directors. We've been approached several times to talk to different groups about our model and how it could work for them. But if you don't have two people who already have a, a proven track record of success together, I think it might be a little bit more precarious. You know, I think that's really helpful because I think everyone could go, huh, that's a pretty good idea. Why don't we think about that? But then the linchpin of the story is you all had already worked together and you both felt that this was, in fact, providing a resource that was even exponentially bigger than just double. Right. Instead of just two bodies, let's say, and sitting in a larger seat, you all actually had worked together and understood each other's strengths and weaknesses. Exactly. And already came in with so much respect for one another Mm. and trust. So we weren't having to build that on the fly. So when you all understood that you needed to move from your current location and perhaps create your own identity with your own building, and so those Words that can be scary, breathtaking, at the same moment, capital campaign came up. Talk to me about that step forward, understanding that that first needed to happen for your organization. Yes. It wasn't a decision we came to lightly. Our former executive director had said to me, you know, I think your next move should be the last one. It's time for everyone to put down roots. And so that had been in the back of my head, but I still resisted it just because of the enormity of the task. Mm -hmm. And then we tried several times to lease different spaces, and it just was becoming very clear to us that our vision was bigger than leasing a room in an office. We had a vision for a real community transformation to be true authentic partners alongside the immigrant community here in Nashville and give everyone a space to really feel at home. And so as the idea started, you know, being floated about what people wanted out of a space and what they wanted out of our home, I was just thinking, you have to be kidding me. This is a soccer field? (laughs) When they said that, I was like, I'm not even going to write that down. (laughs) There's no way. Mm -hmm. There's no way. So our project will be Uh, Really, we're calling it sort of a hub, a home for the immigrant community, working off of this idea that in so many countries, there are little plazas and town squares and people come together around these meeting places that you don't necessarily go because you have a reason to go. It's the place you go 
to be in community with other people um, and feeling like that really still wasn't here in Middle Tennessee for the immigrant community. And so having a soccer field and a playground and community gardens and indoor and outdoor space for people to really come together, having that communal space. And so we will have this wonderful exterior space available for the community. And then interior, we'll also have seating and sort of a Starbucks-style area for our members to be able to come in, have a cup of coffee, print something off if they need to, and find out what sorts of programming or occurring in our space that week and classes and things like that. And then that same space will also be available to rent as an event center, so some sort of earned revenue for the organization as well. All well thought out. That sounds all great. So now you see a need, you create mm-hmm. a space, you have a, a real vision, it sounds like, this community hub versus, okay, we got to build a building and then fill it kind of stuff, even to the point where there is some implicit outreach in terms of having event space for uh, folks as well. So let's talk about beginning to step off that precipice into land of capital campaign and how did you prepare the staff and your board and your volunteers for this I mean, this is a really big deal, just as an aside, to understand that your community, the community that you serve, is very loyal to you. And understandably, the kind of amount of philanthropic dollars may not be to the size that would make something like this easy, but certainly to access that loyalty would be imperative for the success of it. So, Talk to me about how you got everybody ready. Yes. You know, internally, as a staff and board, we had gone on this journey of exploration. And so when we really came up to it, we were very confident that this was the right move because we didn't like any of the alternatives. The other options we had just weren't going to work. And especially once we had come up with this vision, we were also taken with it, there was really nothing that could stop us. Hmm. And so it wasn't about getting people on board anymore. It was just a matter of how. We were all so enthusiastic about this idea and felt like it was the only thing that would satisfy us and that would really work for our community anymore was to be able to create this. And so then it became a process of learning, you know, and that's how we cross paths with you. You know, we sat there and we're like, okay, we need to do this. It pains us to think about not doing this. So we must learn what we do not know, bring people alongside of us who have walked this path before. Because as you know, our board is not a board with a lot of fundraising experience. A lot of them are immigrants and refugees themselves. And we're a passionate and committed bunch. And so everyone was really enthusiastic about the vision. And we have made enough bold moves as a small organization to know that you've just, you've got to try, you've got to go for it. You've got to put yourself out there, even when you don't see the path that you just got to start walking and it'll appear. And so fortunately, that has been what has happened. We've had a really successful campaign but we've led with the vision as much as possible in our meetings with people because that's what has fired us up about it. To say that you could not accept any other alternative, that's a game changer for how people view the effort that you need to take rather than, oh, it's just time. 
we're getting bigger, we need our own space. I feel compelled from the way you even described it, which is a very important piece in terms of putting the effort behind something like a capital campaign. So how did you create the campaign? I mean, what, what were some of the components for you that might have been even new thinking to put the stuff together? Yes. Well, we, again, because we were so committed to the vision, one of the traditional first steps is more of a feasibility study. And we didn't dwell there too much because nothing could keep us from this. And so we gathered what we needed to gather, but the sort of question of should we move forward and, and Is how? Is it the right time? Yeah. Do we have all the connections we need? Yeah. How can we be successful? Yes. And we knew that we just had it just to. It didn't matter. It didn't. <laughs> it, truly. There, nothing could stop us. And I think we have a little bit of that reputation for those who know us. Once we set our mind to it, we're going to go for it. And so, fortunately, there are a lot of really wonderful people in this town who know us and trust us and knew that about us. And we anticipated it being a little bit harder sell than I think it was. And if someone is considering a capital campaign, I wouldn't necessarily want the takeaway to be, go for it. And people were much more generous than we expected. <laughs> yes, I only had to ask them once. And, oh, they whipped out that checkbook. Or I was right. talking to their accountant or their financial manager. And it was so simple. I will not tell you about how many meetings we've had where we walked in and didn't have to ask for money at all. Um, and the people who called us and said, a colleague left this booklet on my desk and I read it and I'm calling you and come get your check. So we've been very fortunate to have several encounters like that, which I understand is not always common for projects like this, but we've been really fortunate. I think that's terrific. Well, let's do some hyperbolic stuff. Like how close are you to goal? Yeah, so we're 70% of the way there. Wow. We're just shy and of 1.9. Wow. I mean, we're almost a year in. That's amazing. Congratulations. Okay, so let's figure out how that happened. <laughs> Besides the magic behind it all, because I'm inspired by you just talking about why you had to do it and how you began to do it. Are there a couple things you would do over? Something you might try differently or not even do if you were to do it over? Yeah. You know, one of the things that did surface in the light feasibility study was that we needed to know more people. You know, we sat down with you early on and looked at our list. And it wasn't a bad list, but it wasn't a long list. And so one of the first things that many advisors said to us was, you're going to need to meet a lot more people. This list isn't going to get you there. And you're going to need people to come alongside you to help introduce you to people. And so we have done a lot of work around name recognition. Um, and many of our events have ended up being more, more name recognition than anything else. And so I think if I were to go back, I probably would make peace a little bit sooner with this idea that part of this process is just going to be getting in front of people, that it's not always asking for money, that so much of donor cultivation is just that it's relationship building. It is hosting four fundraisers where, you know, you end up meeting 100 people and walk away with a total of two checks. But the way that those people have come back around later or introduced us to other people or just then ended up being really loyal supporters and coming to three or four other small-dollar fundraising events, that is all worthwhile and a worthwhile investment. But initially, it was really hard to accept that we would 
host an event and thought, man, I bet we could raise $50,000. And instead we raised more like 50. But we added up a lot of friends at the end of the night and that made it worth it. Yeah. And that's the long-term secret. It's really development, right? We should really just talk about that. But I think that's the difference. Capital campaigns in particular allow you to cultivate, develop, and gain relationships that may, to your point, may in fact provide some kind of financial resource or access to others. And so what I think, particularly for capital campaigns, it's the lifting up of your story and your brand. And then people can come and say, I didn't know anything about it. You know, that's very interesting. I hope they do well. I'm not interested in that. And you don't feel the pressure to say, no, 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 really, you have to be interested. You can just say, I totally understand that. That's great. Glad we're on your radar. Is there anyone else you know in your circle Mm -hmm. that might really feel compelled to learn more and perhaps get involved? Which I think makes it for board staff, volunteers, almost much more of a journey of discovery and announcing to the world, look, I really like this thing. See if you like it. If you don't, I can give you some more information and maybe that'll change your mind. Maybe it won't. But this is what I'm doing. I'm really jazzed about it, which I think falls in line with you all saying we don't have an alternative. This must go forward. Do you have a story of a conversation or something within an event or a meeting you held that caused you to look at the effort differently? Yes. We have been really surprised and overwhelmed in a wonderful way by how personal this has been for people. I knew it was personal for me, and I knew it meant a lot to those of us who are involved and those who are our long-term members. I didn't realize what an opportunity it would be for people who are maybe one step removed or how it has brought people who were donors now really into the inner circle. We have had several meetings where we've gone in and when we told people, they teared up. They were just so excited to see the drawings of the building Mm -hmm. and hear what we were doing that they started to cry. And then we started to cry and It has been wonderful. And right now we're in the middle of our Buy a Brick campaign where we'll have a patio outside of the building with engraved bricks of different sizes that people can buy as a really important way for everyone to feel like they have a part and a home part of the campaign. And this really is their home. They have something to come back to and show people and be proud of. Which is integral to the community, right? Instead of folks with means dropping some new building that includes a community garden and a playground and a soccer field, every person, if they choose to, in the entire Nashville community can be a part of it no matter where their access point is. So you can envision the grandma holding the grandson's hand and walking into this gorgeous community center and finding the brick. Exactly. And that is everyone's building. Yes. That's beautiful. Well, we need that link, too. We'll send it out to subscribers for sure. But so to me, that looks like you have probably this grand plan, right, in kind of the more traditional structures. And then there are these little pieces like the Build-A-Brick campaign. Is that something that helps reinvigorate or refocus? Or is this something to kind of say to the team, 
let's just do something to kind of energize ourselves as well as the community. Exactly. We, throughout this process, have tried to really kind of create our own flashpoints because we know as an organization we do really well with those. Uh, We fundraise well around giving days, around specific moments in time, around campaigns, because it mimics our programmatic work. So people are using a skill set that they already have, which is working on a specific issue campaign for a short push, for a short window of time where there's a fairly quick resolution. And so we try to mimic that in our fundraising campaigns. And so we have tried to, throughout the capital campaign, create different moments, different experiences. And so the brick part is one of it. And we decided to make Valentine's Day our sort of jumping off point um, where we were doing a pretty big push up to that and then doing as many asks as we could this week to get the word out. And so we're really excited. We did several Facebook Live messages today and went on some of the immigrant news outlets to promote it. But it has been exciting for our staff and it has been moving to see how much the bricks mean to people. People are writing things for their family members Um, For the first person who immigrated into their country, one community is buying a brick for the first woman from their country who came to Nashville, who was first sort of resettled here. And they're pulling. I saw you get them as well. That's beautiful. What an idea. Yeah, a family came in today to buy a brick for a loved one who's no longer with them, but this is that person's birthday. And so they wanted to commemorate that day, and they all came into the office together to purchase a brick. And so Creating these opportunities has been really wonderful for our staff. And again, just shocking how much meaning and symbolism it has for other people as well is far surpassed what we could have imagined. That's just beautiful. I want to talk a little bit about some of the volunteer teams that you have and their participation in this larger program of Capital Campaign. I'm thinking of the law students and the the legal group, but I'm very happy to hear if there are others. Just to speak about, so beyond the staff and the board, how you engage volunteers who may say, that's just not my thing. I don't, I get nervous when I have to do anything like that. And how you may have brought them on board or if they've come up with anything on their own. Yeah, that's great. One thing we have tried to do is is have this multiplier effect. Again, recognizing we don't know everyone we need to know who might be interested in contributing to this. And so figuring out how all of our partners can share this opportunity with the people around them. So for things like the Buy a Brick, we will send out a toolkit that is, here's your sample social media post, so you can post this on your Facebook. Um, Here's your sample email, you know, fill this in with personal details uh, and try and give people those tools and tools to promote when they've bought their brick. So we have photos of our members posing with the bricks and things like that. Um, So you're getting your donors to help get more donors. Exactly, especially when we're talking about the importance of the community feeling the ownership of this project. Mm -hmm. That's one of the best ways to do it for us. And to think about scenarios where they would be comfortable doing it. Um, One woman bought a brick, and she was so proud. And then she said, and I'm going to do a taco sale, and I'm going to sell tacos one weekend, and I'm going to donate all the proceeds to the organization. Uh, And so I think figuring out how we make sure that people know that there's room for everything 
whatever idea you're, you're bringing to the table, run with it, and we'll support it and welcome it. I love that. All hands on deck. Exactly. So taking off the co-ED hat, what's been one of the takeaways for you from this exercise of capital campaign? I really have just been so astounded and moved by the generosity of people and the links that people will go to to reorganize their financial situation for something they believe in. Mm. Say that again. Reorganize. Reorganize their finances in order to be able to invest in something they believe in. We've had several people say, we don't usually do capital, but we are this time, or this is the biggest gift we've ever made. And are people who've said, we're not rich, but here's what we can do. And to also be comfortable with that is humbling for me to sit there and say, like, I know I'm asking you to make a stretch gift, and I know that I don't know the implications of that on your family. That's so beautiful. It's unbelievably personal to ask people to make that kind of commitment to the project with you as as sort of the facilitator of that. It feels like a very vulnerable moment for everyone to not say like, don't do it if it's too hard, or I know everyone else is doing a brick, but you only need to pay $20 because I know you don't have much. Like to not to go there, to just wait and let people do what they feel good about. There's a strength and a respect in that, which is just beautiful. The show's called 3 a.m., What's Keeping You Up at Night? I can almost foresee what the answer might be when you're in the middle of a capital campaign, but Lindsay, what's keeping you up at night? You know, yeah, it is certainly the capital campaign and the thought that, like, it's worked to this point, but what if our luck is about to change, right? Like, it's so far so good, but what if the economy shifts too suddenly? What if we've tapped out all of our opportunities or something? It's little things like that that I I wake up thinking about, like... So it's the finish line. Exactly. Yeah. We've we've made it this far, 70% of the way there, 30% to go. And when I look at it on paper, rationally, that feels really doable. But then when I'm like, but where? Where is that other $700,000 coming from? Who is it coming from? But... You know, after six years of of being in the executive role, I've learned that it works out. It just does. If you are doing the right thing, you will get to where you need to be. And we truly believe this building, this community hub, is going to transform Tennessee. And so I just try to sort of quiet those fears by knowing this is the right project at the right time, and we will get there um, when we're meant to get there. Biggest piece of advice you could give uh, an executive director who feels as though it is time to begin on something so consequential as a capital campaign, what would be the biggest piece of advice you could give them? Uh, This will consume you. (laughs) This is not something that you will be able to do in 10 hours a week especially if you're also working on the actual sort of project, the building, the results itself of what will come from the campaign. So bring people in. And when we met with you the first time, Deb, you said, if you get the right capital campaign chair, this will make your life so much easier. 
We took a while to build our team. We spent about six months working with consultants, figuring out how to approach the people um, we wanted on our committee and what the right makeup was. Uh, So take your time, build the right team, um, and then hopefully it'll all come together. Lindsay, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. It was really wonderful catching up and hearing the entire story. And we can't wait to see you all cross over the finish line. And for subscribers, we'll make sure we've got the links to the building. It's absolutely stunning. And then also give everyone out there a chance to buy a brick as well. Yes, we would love it. Want to see everybody at the ribbon cutting. Lindsay Harris from Turk, thank you so much. The Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition. Amazing takeaways from Lindsay Harris here on 3 a.m., What's Keeping You Up at Night. The tensions and anxieties that arise from rapidly shifting demographics have created fertile ground for acts of hate, like the desecration of mosques, and created a climate for extreme anti-immigrant and anti-refugee policy. In 2006, Turk founded the Welcoming Tennessee Initiative. It's a proactive communication campaign. Wood is the recipient of the E Pluribus Unum Prize, a national award administered by the Migrant Policy Institute for Exceptional Immigrant Integration Initiatives. If you would like more information or to invite the Welcoming Tennessee Initiative into your organization, just let them know. You can contact them at tennesseeimmigrant.org. And thank you for joining us. My name is Deb McFarlane Enright. This is the 3 a.m. What's Keeping You Up at Night podcast, a product of the McFarlane Group. Join our community and subscribe to the podcast for bonus material from each episode on our website, themcfarlanegroup.com. Until next time. Mm-hmm.